Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan with Mark. Both here, we think we are here, we've had a couple of internet Issues, issues. Um, so hopefully it will all come together, Mark, and that I won't be cutting and pasting all our vocals for hours and hours in order to put this podcast together. Um, episode 111. <laughs> that sounded vaguely threatening. Like, yeah. do not let this. <laughs> but I do, I've got, to, I've got to take this opportunity to point out to our wonderful listeners that um, essentially I'm a parasite on the side of this podcast <laughs> that you do all the preparatory work, that you do, you, you work on all the jokes, you do all the setup. And so when uh, my dodgy NBN connection from Newcastle spits and sputters, uh, you're the one who does have to whack it into GarageBand or some other sound recording uh, program and put it together and make it music to everyone's ears. So, and you come on and steal the glory, Mark. You're the you're the lead singer. I'm the I'm the I'm the dr- drummer. <laughs> sit, sit at the back. And, um, yes, um, episode one one one. I had I made a mistake last episode, Mark. I think I called it episode one hundred and nine on air. And uh, I couldn't be bothered changing it, so it was one ten. But I did list it as one ten on the website, which is vetgurus.com, and our Twitter feed as well. It is Friday, November the twenty ninth, two thousand and nineteen. So yes, let's hope it all hangs together, Mark. And uh, and uh, gee, I tell you what, we did have a couple of episodes probably 20 or 30 episodes ago where we were completely out of sync and it absolutely drove some of our listeners mad, didn't it? We had um, we had some abusive mail, <laughs> didn't we? Rightly so too. It's a um, Since doing this, Brendan, uh, it's become a little bit of a, I don't know, a little uh, side hobby, a little uh, a pleasure to listen to many other podcasts and, and to try and learn about how they work you already knowing how they work um and um and it is one of the key simple things is being easy to listen to that that if you have poor sound quality um then it is much harder to you know keep up so so i all that effort you go to to resync our voices um i really appreciate it i know there's several of our wonderful listeners who appreciate it equally well, funny you should say that, Mark. We did have, and as I mentioned last episode, we did have our clinic lunch, our very early Christmas lunch at the local pub, the local hotel, and it was fun. It was relaxing and a good time was had by all. And I chatted to Tanya, who's one of our part-time vets who, well, she's sort of out of action at the moment with three young kids and she's wanting to get back into into vet and we had a little bit of a chat about the podcast and she 
said exact virtually word for word the same thing that I've had from a couple of people. She said, it feels like I'm listening into a private conversation <laughs> that I'm sat on a bus or a train and, and Brendan and Mark are just chatting to each other and I'm and I'm sort of leaning over, eavesdropping. Um, so, And I, I took that as a compliment, Mark. So, yeah, um, but she's quite enjoying the podcast. And, we're, we're, and I, I happened to look up shortly before um, that, which um, the statistics, and I think it's 93 countries, Mark. We've hit 93 countries. Jeez, that's amazing. And, look, I think um, it, I, I sort of understand what Tanya's saying, Brendan, because um, I do feel like that, uh, when I listen to some other podcasts, particularly the sort of more higher-profile um, uh podcasts that professional are, yeah, the professional ones <laughs> the ones that are done by you know maybe radio stations or newspapers uh with professional um uh, production standards they do sound like they're they're broadcasting they sound like they are their primary aim is talking to uh the, the audience whereas while i love to involve the audience i do feel often that um yeah i feel like you know, this is our weekly catch-up. We talk to each other about all the things that are going on and um, and we share it with everyone else. So we're talking to them, but it's not as exclusively directed at them. So I'm glad to share our, uh, you know, the little parts of our lives and our professional lives with them. Yes, and stop listening to us. Stop <laughs> eavesdropping. <laughs> no, we like we want lots more listeners. Um, vetgurus.com, the place to go, and patreon.com slash vetgurus if you want to give us a couple of dollars to help keep the eavesdropping going, Mark. Um, do you have – well, what what have you been up to? Have you got any news for well, me? Well, I have no news except I, I was just going to expand on my sadness. We talked before we came to Air Brendan about the um, – the impending UPAV conference in Melbourne and the wonderful uh, um, lineup of speakers and um, the quality of the, uh, you know, it's been, I've been uh, really pleased with the, um, you know, remember our visit to Europe a couple of years ago where we um, we had the pleasure of uh, listening to speakers talk about uh, unusual and exotic pets in uh, that part of the world. And we have a little bit of a, th- for our international listeners, we have a little bit of a, a self-deprecating attitude to most things in Australia and certainly veterinary science is much the same. We sort of, I suppose, I don't, you know, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I sense that we uh, often feel like we're trying to catch up with the rest of the world in terms of, you know, uh, excellence and and but um, I really feel since that visit to Europe that um, uh, when we went to Venice, I, I I really feel like we're here in Australia and particularly our uh, UPAV conference. I, I feel that um, you know, we stand up well compared to the rest of the world, and I don't necessarily feel like um, you know, I feel like the international speakers we get and the topics we covered are, are, you know, they're cutting edge in our area of practice, Brendan. Well, yes, I'm here. I am here. I had that little heart attack there because because (laughs) of our pre-recording glitches. I went, oh, my goodness, we've done it again. Yes, I'm here. Well, I was just about to say that this podcast is going to air 
as the conference is happening because we're recording it a couple of days before the conference starts. So um, the conference will be in full swing when this is released, if I remember to <laughs> hit publish, Mark, if I haven't had a big night um, out with the with the um, conference delegates. But, uh, yeah, so hopefully it's all going well and no doubt we will have a bit of a report in the following week or weeks. And as we mentioned off air, I will t- potentially try and do a couple of interviews of some of the delegates while I'm there, um, depending whether I got caught up with things and I end up just, well, socialising basically and forgetting to do a recording there, Mark. But, yeah, we'll see. So, yes, yeah, so it is, It is. yeah, it is a very friendly conference. I encourage our listeners from overseas who do not know about our conference to consider coming to one of our conferences. We have it every year in different locations in mainland Australia usually and uh, we'd love to have you come and visit and enjoy it because, gee, I, I think all the overseas visitors who come and see our conference or, or attend it, Mark, they seem to think, gee, it was fun. I think that's one of the main things I end up saying, it was fun. Well, I think it and, – and it is it, – you know, I don't want to um, speak about um, – uh, countries, you know, it's all about the individual people. I, I'm not a big um, nationalistic sort of person. I don't want to say that Australia is a better place than anywhere else, and we certainly have our reasons to be embarrassed about our country. Um, but I do think that cohort of um, veterinarians who work in our field, Brendan, they, they're a special bunch of people, and when they get together, um, they are oh, they are at the cutting edge of um of the science of veterinary care of exotic and avian species, but they're also bloody hilarious and just fun to be around. Um, so, so I do think it does. Um, it uh, serves multiple purposes uh, for people to come and visit us here in Australia and attend the UPAV conference. Absolutely. Well, enough back slapping, Mark. We need to move on. So I, I think we need to jump into it. We won't do a review again this week. Um, we must do one next week. I keep saying that, but we must do a review. They're sort of banking up the potential things to review. This, well, our main news story is news, isn't it? Um, that is our main topic this week. So we need to knock over a few of the news topics which have been adding up. And some of these have been sent in to us by our listeners so thank you all for that and um, yeah we need to tick a few off the list mark because I think I've got about 20 lined up and we'll cover about eight or so today so let's jump into them Um, the first one you've got which is a one we do every year and it makes me laugh (laughs) and uh, that's the comedy wildlife photos winners win win, comedy wildlife photography awards 2019 winners mark so What's your thoughts well, on that? Well, I, I, you know, it, I, I love looking at these photographs each year, and um, and I, I often um, think about how they have come about. I sort of like to think about the circumstances, and and it, I am drawn to the fact that um, a lot of the photographers who enter the uh, comedy wildlife um, photography competition, they're they're very uh, auspicious wildlife photographers in their own right, generally, and I sort of think that um, that 
I've got this vision of them, you know, racking up the images on their their computer and picking out the the ones that are going to be good for National Geographic or whatever uh, commission they're on. But then, inevitably, there's um there's a whole lot of duds. Well, if they're anything like me, but then there's a whole lot of um just in the moment, just uh, particularly if you uh, fire off um, those uh, eight to Ten frames per second, and you're um and you're trying to catch something in the moment, uh, maybe a behaviour, maybe a um, uh, uh, you know, a bird in flight, or um, something that just gives you a, a, a higher order wildlife photo. It only takes just the slightest look on the animal's face, or whatever, to turn it into something that's hilarious. And a lot of them. I reckon, benefit from um, anthropomorphism. They benefit from the um, the application of what people, you know, uh, the application of human intentions or emotions or um, uh, human looks, how people's faces might look in particular circumstances, and, and that's what makes them hilarious. Um, but the one that grabs me the most... Um, I love the overall winner. The um, the overall winner just makes me. That's the the uh, lion cub with its. Um, well, I assume it's its father <laughs> um, or, or other <laughs> adult male relative, um, and you can just see the photograph. It's a story, isn't it, Brendan? It leads you to assume what's about to happen in the frames subsequent to this one. <laughs> Ouch! Yes, and the title is "Grab a Life" by the dot dot dot, and it's a a little cub, well, leaping at the rear end of a of a well endowed male adult. Um, let's just say it that that much. Um, so yes, um, it's it's excellent. The thing, well, the thing that grabs me, but so to speak, about <laughs> these um, these winners, Mark, um, or actually all of the photos that the finalists as well, um, is. The backgrounds, Mark, and it's that whole God, aspect of thinking and, and yes, um, thinking about either having a very clear background or or a, or a non-distracting background there, and it's something you you often forget about when you when you're out there trying to take pics. You, 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 um, early on, especially, you don't think about wandering around for a slightly different view or an angle to to get rid of that distracting little feature there, and um, it really then enables you to zone in on the actual um, main subject there and flicking through all of these um, you can see how the background does not detract from the well I've photos got it, there mark I've got a, well, I'm going to steal your thunder yep. once again um, the, um, my other favorite um, is the um, is the uh, deer who's taken a leaf out of the hunter's book and decided to to camo <laughs> up <laughs> and um, that is some, I don't know how they saw that deer here because it's obviously a, um, they would have used a telephoto lens to grab that pic as well. But gee, it's it's amazing. Um, yeah, and I, I encourage everybody to have a look at these. So, and it's just the website is comedy wildlife photo all one word dot com comedy wildlife photo dot com. So, and you can look at the two thousand and nineteen winners and also I. 
advise you to go and have a look at the gallery as well and you can look at all the uh, 2019 finalists as well. So there's a, um, and everyone in that um, finalist um, category is is fantastic, yeah. those photos. In fact, there's a couple of them that I probably prefer <laughs> than the ones that made it into the final, Mark. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, no, none of my photos in there, Mark, and um, I can't see any of yours. No, no, in we're, there. We're, we're bare novices compared to those people, Brent. Well, I'm going to jump onto my first news story, and it's a good news one, Mark. I did promise some good news this week, and it is the release of the whales. And I think you know about this story from the notorious Russia or Russian whale jail um, is complete. Um, after nearly five months, authorities have completed the release of all 97 orcas and beluga whales. And the background to this was um, it was four Russian companies supplied marine mammals to aquariums were caught with, they'd caught almost 100 beluga whales and orcas over the course of several months in the summer of 2018. And they were put in holding pens in Russia's far east ever since and the Russian government began the process of returning them to the wild um, once I think it was outed that they were doing this and um, you look at those holding pens, Mark, with how many of those whales they got stuffed into these little holding pens before they are going to be shipped and, off to And the other thing about the aquariums um, was that they were not like they, they were they – were, trading them internationally as i understand it but also there's a like a pop-up aquarium the traveling yeah they like to uh to obscure obscure country towns near vladivostok and um and uh and of course the the whales involved wouldn't survive two or three towns in in that sort of circumstance and um and all uh, credit to the uh, the Russian government in um, in in taking part in the whole of the world's attitude to whales and deciding that this is a cruel and unacceptable way to treat them. Brendan, I've got a question for you about this. There, yes. Before you ask me that question, there is one downside to this story. Um, Forty-seven of those one hundred, roughly one hundred animals, were. Um, released yeah. at the point of capture mark in June. But in a joint statement, they said the release location for some of them was not ideal um, because they noted the presence of where they released some of them to be near North <laughs> Korean hunting ships um, is where they released some. So, you know, that you can't really put a good spin on that bit. Um, Look, I think you like I, I, meat, I still I take suppose, this as, but, um, you know, yeah, I am, yeah. I know, I am critical of your position of sad and depressing. Um, critical probably overstates it, and I contribute to <laughs> my fair share of, of depressing stories. But um, I am, I really want to pat you on the back for your effort to search for for positive stories in this space, and um, and I, and this is definitely one. And um, I note uh, my question to you was: uh, my social media feed has been um, has certainly had a fair few. Uh, uh, posts about a beluga that was playing football that would chase a ball, a wild beluga or a beluga, let's say a beluga in the wild um, that would uh, chase after a football. And I'm pretty sure it's one of these released ones that um, 
that uh, had been trained for a period of time and then returned to the wild. And um, some people have caught some footage of it in the North Sea, in the Northern Seas, and um, and that's been a bit of a social media storm. Would that do you think that's a reasonable assumption, Brendan? I do know that they often have them in those in those aquariums trained to to play with those balls, those beach ball type things, and that's so how I presume that. That's the logical conclusion they're having there, but um, yeah, I don't know, Mark. I don't know. I'm, I get a bit, um, I get a bit wary of some of those reports. But you're the social media expert, so I'm sure you're onto it. And if if you think it's the case, then I'm sure it is the case, Mark. So it's a bit of a story tinged in a bit of sadness, but hopefully, um, eventually, I... at least they are back where they oh, belong, okay. Brendan. At least they're not. Well, on the dinner plate, is that what I, you're I, saying? I, I would fancy my chances in the open ocean rather than, you know, they, it's certain death if they stay in those um, those holding pens. So if I if I was one of them, I would um, prefer to be released and uh, try and beat the North Korean whale fishers. Yes, yes. Okay, what have you got? You've got something. You've got a good news story, haven't you, your next one? Um, so hang on. Let me just make sure I'm looking at the right story, Brendan. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, the the yes, songbird. Do, do the rep. Yes. Um, <laughs> in fact, I'm going to ask you to double up and um, – Yes, yes. And do my next one? I will. Okay. Yes, sorry about that. I'll throw you in, in the list there. You've, you're obviously very I'm well prepared as usual. <laughs> Just got a breath. Okay, so my next one, <laughs> my next one is a, a little um, a Royal College of Vet, um, Royal Veterinary College study, Mark, that um, I sort of touched on this a few episodes ago, um, but it's about the well, it's about the gap on UK pet rabbit health, Mark, um, and where they've identified the most common medical issues and causes of death in pet rabbits. And I know we have touched on it before, but just a little bit more detail on it. They collected data from 6,349 rabbits that had attended over 107 veterinary clinics around the UK, and they found the most common cause of death recorded by vets were fly strike, which was 10.9%, Mark, anorexia, which is interesting. So I presume they're lumping in all the gut stasis type cause there. So whether I think a lot of them will be obviously secondary related problems with that. Anorexia 4.9, collapse 4.9, gut stasis, oh, there you go, they have separated it out separately, 4.3. And interestingly, Mark, I think you'll find this one um, of interest, the study also revealed the average lifespan of pet rabbits, and this is in the UK from that survey, was just 4.3 years. Although survival up to 14.4 years has been recorded. And in fact, I just saw last week, I saw two um, very, very, very old rabbits. I saw one that was 14 and I saw a 13-year-old Mark um, and the 14-year-old one was doing remarkably well. Um, Yeah. Um, what else did the survey talk about? Male rabbits tend to live longer at 5.2 years of age on average compared to 3.7 for the females. And most common medical issues, I presume this is what they were brought to the vet clinic for, 
Overgrown nails, Mark, so nail clips, 16%. Overgrown molars, so dental problems, 7.6%. Dirty bums, as um, <laughs> how they record it here, 4.5%. And overgrown incisors, 4.3%. Gut stasis, 4.3%. So, yeah. Um, so there we go. Other key findings, I'll just touch on another couple there, Mark. Average adult body weight of rabbits presented to vets, 2.1 kilos, which, I mean, I'd, I, you know, I don't think that really tells you much because you might be dealing with a giant rabbit that's, you know, five kilos plus and you might be dealing with a miniature lot that's well under a kilogram there, Mark. Um, and, yeah, that's about it. It was by... Um, Joe Headley and Dan O'Neill, I think, were the two um, vets who did that bit of a survey. But it was good to have some of these sort of surveys of of, of these species that um, were commonly seen, but we don't have much of a much of a grasp about what um, what the common presentations for and the common illnesses and common um, or the supposed average lifespan. It is lifespan really interesting, like. Brendan, and and it um, makes me a complete liar out of what I tell tell the clients who come in to me about what they can expect their rabbit to do. But the thing that strikes me about this um, this particular story um, was vet compass, Brendan. Do you know this story? Um, I don't think so. Tell me about it. So, as I understand it, um, and uh, this is. Uh, um, well, a vet compass is a, a an add-on, a, a, a computer program um, addition, um, and for a few of the uh, commonly used practice management softwares, um, it's possible for researchers, whether they be in practice or in an institution, um, they can uh, they you sort of um, they can access the data, the pooled data, and then do these sorts of research work. Um, and as I understand it, if I am in, we'll have to do a bit of research to confirm this, but the latest thing I heard was that it is a, a thing for a number of the, the programs in Australia. It obviously is a thing for some of the practice management software in the UK. Um, and I think there is already some some studies underway in Australia uh, through at least one I know of in Sydney University. Um, and maybe we can make it a little bit of a, a, uh, a thing that we have a look at in a future podcast that, um, because there's very interesting uh, um, ethical questions and research, you know, the statistical questions about uh, the way that this data is collected and used. And, um, and, the interpretations and prescriptions we make from it might be affected by those uh, those discussions, the, the concerns about uh, how we interpret the data, Brendan. Yes, and I've found the website there. So, yeah, Royal Veterinary College Vet Compass. So, yes, I think it may be something we need to have a bit more of a a deeper look at Mark, and we'll, we'll comment on in a future podcast. So, have you found the um, story you <laughs> were supposed to talk about? I have, I have indeed, and um, and it's a cracker, Brendan. It's a cracker. It's titled. It's from our, you know, one of our favourite um, Mother Nature Network. I just shout out, um, and it's a story about a very rare songbird um, that's been brought 
back from the brink of extinction thanks to the Endangered Species Act in the US. Um, I've no doubt that our good friend President Trump is having a look at the Endangered Species Act even as we speak, Brendan. Um, The interesting thing about this particular um, uh, instance of a an uh, iconic native North American bird surviving, um, is that, um, that there's been quite a few that have not, and Kirkland's warbler is the one that, um, that I'm talking about, uh, on the brink of extinction by habitat loss and nest parasitism. Uh, the decline was so dramatic um, that... Uh, um, the species wasn't listed until 1967 and uh, and then um, very quickly approached um, extinction. And the reason for it, this, uh, besides the usual pressures of habitat loss and the particular uh, problem of parasites in the nest, uh, the interesting thing was the very specific nesting criteria um, that this species needs. So... Um, they need a particular tree, the uh, the jack pine tree, um, and it must be very, very. It must be at a particular stage of growth. It must be five to twenty feet tall, and it has to be between six and twenty-two years of age. Um, and if it's outside that range, then then they can't breed. Um, and it's really interesting. Before the trees reach six years of age, the lower branches aren't large enough to conceal the nests, and so all the young birds are preyed upon. When the uh, tree gets to about 15 years of age, um, and certainly after 22 years of age, the younger branches die and the birds can't reach the higher branches. And so what made this so um, so significant the fact that um, the management of wildfires in the uh, in the US meant that there were very few trees in the category that um, you know the the growth of new saplings was uh, not not there the trees were uh, getting um, past the point where the birds could use them and uh, turning into adult trees um, so it uh, once again, it's a really interesting, and particularly this is pertinent because of the massive fires we're having here in Eastern Australia at the moment. That um, the management of our um, uh, of our native bushland and the natural process of fire management, um, if that's altered even just relatively modestly, it can make profound differences to the species that live in those areas. Yes, and I was fascinated by the other threat that you sort of mentioned, the brood parasite, and that's from the brown-headed cowbird, Mark. So do you know about this? Um, You probably already (laughs) do. The brood parasite that replaces its host's egg with its own, tricking the host parents into raising its chicks. It's one of the cuckoos, Brendan. The cowbird is one of the cuckoos. So it's it's and it is an it's a, it's a, it's not an invasive species there, but its trickery, according to the article, combined with the loss of the habitat, was too much for them to handle, and that's why they became extinct. So yes, they're sneaky some of these birds, aren't they? <laughs> well, Mark? the interesting thing about that whole process is that the degree that to which the nest can be hidden is a critical factor in how many cowbirds can find them and lay their eggs in them. And the the cuckoos and cowbirds are particularly nasty in that the young 
hatch out from their eggs several days before the actual birds that uh, that have you know the eggs of the birds who've laid them, and they kick the eggs out or the young birds out. So there's only one cowbird left in the nest, and uh, they demand the complete attention of the um, of the warblers. So uh, the the fact that the nests can be hidden. Um, means that the warblers are not exposed to the cowbirds nearly as much and the parasitism is limited dramatically. And it's not just that species where they lay their eggs, Mark. Um, I'm just looking up a couple of the facts about the um, brown, brown-headed cowbird. It can, they can lay their eggs into the nests of almost more than 220 species of birds. Um, so, gee, they've sorted things out. They don't have to do the parenting. They just shove the eggs in somebody else's necks. I tell you, that makes me ask you about, because um, I know that just recently the channel-billed cuckoo, one of the uh, nest parasites we have here in Eastern Australia, have recently been recorded in Melbourne for the first time. Have you... Um, have you heard any channel bill cuckoos, or they sometimes get bought into hospitals that deal with um, veterinary hospitals that deal with exotic birds? Have you seen any of these? Big no, birds, I haven't, Brenda? Mark. No, I haven't. But I'll be on. I'll be on the lookout, Mark. I'll be on the lookout. Um, well, that. That was, that was, I must admit, that was a very interesting article, Mark, um, considering it was an avian one and I still thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think you've got another bird one for us. Ah, so um, now I'm talking about, um, I'm, I'm particularly excited by this one, Brendan, because we've just, uh, and we'll definitely talk about this in the next few weeks, the uh, um, the Guardian paper here in Australia has an election for Australia's favourite bird each year. Um, but this particular article talks about um, the vote for New Zealand's favourite bird. Now, this is particularly interesting because um, uh, the kakapo, our wonderful kakapo, has been a perennial favourite for uh, New, the coveted title of New Zealand's bird of the year. Um, but after two weeks of... Uh, frenetic campaigning by researchers um, on various, uh, the researchers of various other species campaigning on the behalf of their favourite bird. Um, the Kiwis, funnily enough, you know, Kiwis being a colloquial name for people who live in New Zealand, as well as quite possibly the weirdest bird in the world, um, the Kiwis haven't featured in the... Uh, they're just taken a little bit for granted, I think, in the this particular poll, and um, the kakapo has gotten up. But this year, um, the world's rarest penguin, um, the, the New Zealand name Hoiho, um, but it's the yellow, diminutive yellow-eyed penguin has been voted in as their favourite feathered friend. And this is, like, you know how much I love birds in general, and but it also is a... a a, a bird that um, reminds me of uh, one of the very once Kate and I got engaged, we had a little trip to New Zealand, and down at Dunedin, we had the pleasure of seeing these birds in the wild. So it takes me back to those romantic days, Brendan, when um, Kate and I were before we were married and had kids, and we're travelling and looking at wildlife. The hoi ho was one of the birds we got. Ah, uh, you're a romantic at um, heart, aren't you? So there's still not many of them left is there it's still what they're in the hundreds max is that correct or not um, 
I think so. And I think they're focused around Dunedin. Um, and interestingly enough, um, they, uh, they are um, – cats are one of the things that um, uh, are the biggest, you know, environmental threat for them. They, uh, they uh, have to come up onto the coast to breed um, and, um, and when they do, they're often smacked by the local cats and I did see one of the researchers in Dunedin um, tracked, probably using one of uh, um, Microchips Australia cat trackers, um, tracked a cat who travelled 21 kilometres to a, from a suburb to a beachside location, slaughtered a uh, yellow-eyed penguin and returned home the next day for their uh, bowl of um, dry food, I expect. Um, so... It, they, for many reasons, they're, um, they're not out of the woods yet by any stretch, um, but it's so good to see their numbers growing. And, it's, and I think one of the things about these, um, these uh, uh, populist uh, Australia's favourite bird, New Zealand's favourite bird, is that they do um, raise public general public awareness. You and I and our listeners will largely be across the trouble that many of these species of birds are going through um, but unless the general population care about them then nothing's going to get done and these um uh, these uh, votes definitely they raise the the uh, um, the interest of the general punter um, in these species and make them aware of the risks that um, will make them more aware of the risks these birds are going through yes well said, Mark. I cannot add anything more to that one. Um, <laughs> they are pretty special-looking birds. Um, I know I, I know I stir you up about the birds, but you know I have a bit of a soft spot for the birds um, sitting there somewhere in the back of my brain. There, Mark. Um, yes, and I certainly dealt with a lot of birds when I was working as a zoo vet as well. Probably two thirds of the species I was dealing with were, were birds for three years or so. So just quietly, um, I, I did have a reasonable amount of experience with dealing with But Most of them are post-mortem examinations, so I must admit. <laughs> yeah, so my last news story, Mark, is, I think it is, my, no, it's my second last one. Um, it's, it's a report from Science Daily about a, a, um, a paper that was in Society for Neuroscience and it's about social isolation. So social isolation derails brain development in mice, Mark. Um, and basically the gist of the story is female mice that were housed alone during adolescence showed atypical development of the prefrontal cortex and resorted to habitual behaviour in adulthood. And not surprisingly, the findings show how social isolation could lead to an over-reliance on habit-like behaviours that are associated with addiction and obesity. So I think, you know, we could, most of us could predict that sort of um, um, result with it, but, um, you know, I think it just is another another paper that stresses the importance of the things that we talk about all the time um, with, with, um, with clients but also on the podcast as well about um, making sure that we encourage people to keep a number of, animals together when it is a species that needs to be communal and making sure that they have good that they have environmental enrichment mark and that um, we look after their brains because um, 
well, as far as we know, most of them have only got one brain, although you're going to talk about an interest in um, an interesting creature, um, or I will, or we both will, that um, may not even have a brain. <laughs> and that's one of the next news stories. So, yeah, um, that's all I'm going to say about this particular one, but it's a bit uh, – oh, well, the only other comment I had on that, Mark, is that I, I, personally I'd struggle struggle to do that particular experiment. Um, when, yes. Yeah. Would you? And I do, I do, I think that um, the measure of keeping an animal alive, it harkens back to those whales or so many of the, the, um, the pets that we do get to see. And I say pets um, while I'm moving my hands in the inverted commas um, motion. Um, I think that um, just keeping them alive is not good enough in my mind, that um, that uh, oftentimes making sure they're fed and that they have um, water and that they can't get out of what enclosure they're in is not enough yes. that they're, they, they're complex uh, in many ways and working whether it's um, the social interactions, whether it's uh, behaviours in with uh, particular substrates or refuges or uh, food uh, sources, those behaviours are critical to their quality of life. And, um, and yeah, this is just another uh, story that uh, informs the importance of, um, of making sure that we do look after their brains, Brendan, that it's not that it's not something we take for granted. And, um, and you know, you and I see it every day at practice, the, the bird or uh, um, a rabbit or guinea pig uh, that has a vice, um, that, um, that has a grooming problem, that has a... Um, and, and it often, very often, comes down to um, failure to socialise and behave normally. Yes. Um, and by the time we get to see them, unfortunately, um, the, the, the lesion, if you like, um, has been there for too long and it's not something that we can manage or correct completely. We always have to make attempts to do it, but, um, yeah, I don't know that, that some of them are broken, Brendan, is what I'm saying. Some of them are broken. Absolutely, and it's a tough conversation, isn't it, with that client when you start trying to explain to them or introduce the possibility that the quality of life of that animal is not there, that, yeah, they may be supplying those basic needs for, for food and and um, accommodation or to a little enclosure, but do they have any quality of life? And, um, yeah, they're um, – and in some of those cases, and I know I have done it in the past and I'm sure I'll do it in the future, there, there are certainly cases there where I'd be pushing very hard to um, suggest to the client that we need to, we need to stop with this animal. It, it is just so broken, as you – mentioned that the kindest thing would be to put it to sleep um have you had had that conversation with clients i expect you have you know i have um it's it's an awful conversation to have and um and uh and i often um revert to the comments that um that our good friend uh, Dr. Deb up in Brisbane, um, she, uh, I, I quote her an email that um, that she sent one time that said um, that uh, in terms of of uh, quality of life outcomes, in terms of uh, justifying quality of life, um, uh, euthanasia is not 
a bad outcome for many animals that um, despite uh, our views of death and uh, the end of a life, sometimes that's not the worst that can happen. So, so I, I, it, as you point out, it is a difficult conversation to have and particularly with people who are attached very closely to these animals to try and um, explain to them that, that, it, that what they're doing is, is not in the animal's best interests and may even in some instances be so bad um, that, uh, that it's causing the animal to suffer is a very difficult thing to, um, to do sensitively and to ensure that they, they don't react adversely. Um, but, yeah, I, just on uh, uh, last week I had uh, one jumps to mind um, that sticks out a beautiful uh, diamond python that had um, horrible, this isn't a social interaction, but a discussion about um, pain that the owner who loved the animal couldn't recognise the spinal um, osteomyelitis that virtually paralysed the back half of the snake um, that... that um, you know, that that was sufficient quality of life problem because the snake didn't cry in a way that he was familiar with that would register as a painful thing. Um, he felt that he was managing the complications well and um, and it took some time to be gentle with him and, and, um, and let him know that he'd done a good job but that it wasn't going to be good enough and that it was a wise thing for us to stop there. Yes. They're the days when you just want a few vaccinations to come in. Mark, or a few nail clips, don't you? Um, <laughs> like like the rabbits. Yeah, the, the, yeah. Yes, <laughs> that's right. What's your next story, Mark? It's another bird one, is it? Or not? No, I don't think it is. Ah. I don't think it is. I think my next story um, is, um, I think that... Uh, <laughs> I um I was trying to palm this one off to onto you because I love it. I love our podcast when you try to pronounce the names of these things, um, because you're so much better at it than I am, and um and you have a go at them, whereas I just go, yeah, you know what? I'm not saying that scientifically. It's going to embarrass <laughs> me. Um, but the one I'm talking about is a um uh it's a um, nematode. Um, a recently discovered nematode, a tiny nematode um, that's been given the common name of devil worm, mainly because, not because of any behaviour that it uh, performs or, you know, not any intent, but just because of the location in which it lives. They weren't discovered until 2008, about a mile down in a South African gold mine. Um, and so this particular roundworm... Um, was immediately hailed as the deepest living animal ever found. Um, and so that's, uh, you know, deep in a mine, squelching under pressure. Uh, you can sort of understand why that would be thought of as hell. And so the worm living there would be, uh, would be described as a devil worm. Um, but the really interesting thing about this particular svelte half-millimetre worm um, is uh, the fact that um, the location that it lives in um, has, a, you know, like many hills, um, uh, it has to deal with specifically very high temperatures um, and uh, the, the um, ridiculously high pressures as well. Now, the interesting thing about this is that um, researchers can 
from this animal can uh, start to look at the ways in which it copes with um, uh, what would normally be uh, conditions that are not conducive to uh, to normal life. Um, and they have recently published, researchers have recently published in the journal Nature Communications, um, the, the, well, the big part of the creature's secret, the protein HSP70, uh, so the so-called heat shock protein, um, which is found in very, very small amounts in many life forms, uh, but um, it is you know, in buckets, in uh, uh, H. Mephisto. <laughs> there you go, Brendan. Ah, uh, Helicephalobus <laughs> Mephisto. Helicephalobus Mephisto. Yes, um, and I think that, that their extrapolation from that was that at some stage that there might be a possibility of, of grabbing this particular gene, Mark, or this protein and somehow using it to our advantage and you know you never know you might have a few of it um cut and sliced into your genome at some stage mark do you think well i think um, it's more likely that they'll slice it into you know um food crops that uh that have to um you know suffer the temperatures associated with climate change they're, they're the sort of um i think that well before they toss it into me that um feeding the masses will be the plan brendan I think it'll work very well for you, Mark. You, you know, if you can't stand the heat, Mark, you need to, you need a, f- a few of these I'm, I'm thrown in. I'm walking out of the kitchen right now. Yes. Well, the last news story, Mark, is one that we need to deal with together because I'm trying to get my head around this one because it's, um, well, it's, it's courtesy of um, it was sent to me by Dr. Belinda. So thank you, Belinda, who. Um, mentioned, uh, or, or what was she just sent me an email with this one in there, meet the blob, the what, creature. What did you, what, did you think um, Belinda, like, sent it to you approvingly or did, is there aspects of this story, do you think, Belinda? Relates to me, the blob, asking, a, cre- a creature that has, out? Yeah, a creature that has no brain, yes, and almost 720 sexes. And it's from... If, from a website called Girl Scientist. Mark, have you visited Girl Scientist before? Um, Can't say I have. It's um, part of the Forbes network. Um, so um, I'll cut and paste to that and I'll put a link to that um, for the show notes there, Mark. But, yeah, this is about the mysterious micro beastie, which they have labelled the blob mark, which is a unicellular critter. A bit like a fungus, but acts like an animal. And they regard it as remarkable for many reasons, not the least of which is that it has almost 720 sexes. But Brendan, gee, we were having a bit of a chat just... about this bit. And, uh, and, and yeah, let's leave that bit to the last, okay, Mark. Okay. Let's leave that bit. Uh, I'll keep but, our powder dry, as it were. Yes. <laughs> it has a variety of other supposed superpowers as well, Mark. And um, let's just go down it. It surprises us because it supposedly has no brain, but is able to learn. And it has um, links to references for this and and if you merge two blobs mark the one that learned will transmit its knowledge to the other blobs and well basically mark what is it it's 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 a plasmodium let's just let's just cut Cut to the chase chase. it's a plasmodium um which is a slime mold and uh it's sort of typical slime mold behavior about the way it sort of 
um, moves around and it and it moves at a pretty slow rate, but it can, um, even though it doesn't have legs, it slowly does its slime mould thing and can um, move around and it can even supposedly has an, an ability to solve basic puzzles or mazes, Mark, as well. Um, so, yeah, but it was quite a fun a fun little article there, but yeah, the 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 bit that I take offence to, um, or, or to, um, um, well, maybe not offence, but I just don't quite can't wrap my single brain around Mark is is the bit about the um, almost seven hundred twenty sexes that these slime molds supposedly have. So, do you want to talk about their reasoning behind that? And I do, um, and I've got a couple of comments to make about it. Um, so the 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 logic is, and I'm gonna. So there's no confusion. I'm going to do a little bit of reading here. Back, But back to our almost 720 sexes that these beasties have. You are, no doubt, having trouble wrapping your head around that. And you may be wondering about the dating possibilities that exist for these wee beasties. Basically, slime moulds can only mix their genetic material when they possess a compatible set of mitochondrial genes known as Matt A, Matt B, and Matt C, each of which has as many as 16 variations. So extrapolating from those three permutations raised to the power of whatever, 16, is that right? That's where they get the number 720 from. So it would appear that slime moulds lead a very complicated social life. Look, the thing I worry about this, Brendan, is that this isn't. These aren't sexes. Um, this isn't seven hundred and twenty sexes. This is a unique, but very primitive way of uh, mixing genes up so that um, you know you can evolve. Um, but the 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 thing I want to ask you is: Are scientists, in their urge to communicate psychom fashion? Um, in the tweets, in the interwebs, are they taking liberties with scientific fact and stretching definitions to get clicks? This is my question for you, Brendan. Well, the answer is yes, obviously, Mark. <laughs> um, well, I have found the link to the article or the journal or the paper, actually. It's a journal of plant research, Mark, and, and this is the title of the paper where, where they um, – then extrapolate from to say that it has that number of, of sexes. Um, are you ready? It is. This is and, and, and gee, I'd, I'd be proud if I ever produced a title of a published paper with something like this. It'll make me feel half intelligent, Mark. Um, maternal inheritance of mitochondria, multipolarity, multi-allelism, and hierarchical transmission of mitochondrial DNA in the true slime mold Physarium polycephalin. So that's the title of their paper, and and it, I, th- I um, think well, you should just get a degree for reading that title. I will t- tell you what, the um, if you think that's hard enough, you should see the abstract. The abstract is only two paragraphs, and oh, my brain's hurting just reading it. Um, but the 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 final sentence in the abstract is: this review describes a phenomenon of hierarchical transmission of mitochondria chondrial DNA in true slime moulds and discusses the presumed molecular mechanism of maternal and biparental inheritance. So there you go. Wow. But yes, um, I um, 
there's some smart people out there, Mark. Um, we I'm certainly not one of them, but um, yeah. Um, well, that's the blob, isn't it? Um, that's all I can say. That is the blob. Some pretty neat pictures of the blob in that article. And we, yeah, they they are very photogenic slime molds. They are exceptionally photogenic, I reckon. And um, and those stills uh, do them justice. But there's also some um, footage. You know, you were talking about the way they grow and move and interact. And yes. I know I have seen some footage sped up, of course. Um, but um, but it is pretty amazing to watch. And if you're interested and you're in Paris, Mark, um, it will be they are putting the blob on the branches of a tree in the vivarium at the Paris Zoo, the Parc Zoologique de Paris, Mark. Um, so it will be there on display. And if you sit for long enough, you'll be able to see it move, Mark, and um, you can ponder about the 720 sexes that these little beasties supposedly have that we've debunked um, already. (laughs) Um, So, yes, um, but they are pretty photogenic um, little organisms there, but um, I never thought I'd be saying that um, a blob is photogenic, Mark. Um, Well... With that note, I think we better get out of here um, before we get into more trouble. Well, I hope you, you know, this is just slightly pre-recorded, so I'm saying this, like people will hear this after. I just hope you have a great time at the conference, Brendan, and I hope everyone who's there has a blast. I will. I am and I did, Mark, is my reply to that, and we will talk about the conference next week with a little post-mortem. So talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.